Thank you for tuning in to the sermon podcast from Redeeming Hope. We exist as a family of faith that follows Jesus and helps others find him by living all of life as missionaries of hope. If you want more information about our church or would like to support our ministry, go to our website at redeeminghope.org. Please enjoy the sermon podcast. Jesus is enough. Welcome all to the digital stream of our Sunday message at Redeeming Hope. So thankful that you would join us again today as we continue our series, our Advent series, God with us through Isaiah chapter 53. And we're actually going to finish up the chapter today. Man, just so rich, so deep, so powerful as we look at Christ in this chapter. Before we do that, just a few things by way of announcements. Remind you of what we're doing here at Redeeming Hope here in Clarksville. We exist as a family of faith that follows Jesus and helps others to find him by living all of life as missionaries of hope. And in that, we have four cultural, we call them cultural resolutions. In other words, these are ways that we've resolved to interact with our not yet Christian community. And uh, here's how we communicate it. Even if you don't identify as a follower of Jesus, you're welcome at Redeeming Hope. Even if you don't believe the Bible is true, you're welcome here. If you're hurting, you're welcome here. If you have questions, you're welcome here. You know, one of the things we say just to help people understand our, our culture at Redeeming Hope, that we're not an insider's club, is that it's okay not to be okay, but it's not okay to be okay with not being okay. In other words, we can come as we are and we can come hurting, we can come with questions, we can come um, even if we're just wrestling with the claims of Christ, but over time, our expectation is that God's gonna work in your life. And so it's, when we say it's not okay to be okay with not being okay, in other words, let's not resign to where we are, but let's seek the Lord, let's ask those questions, let's seek those answers, and let's trust, let's trust God to move through that process to move us to where he wants us to go, to take us where he wants us to go. Um, we are sort of wrapping up our 2022 budget, and one of the things that we're doing is we have a 10K end-of-year uh, giving campaign. That'll help us recoup some of our expenses and getting into our new space this year. It'll help us with some moving into vision and outreach for next year. If you'd like to uh, help us out with that, you can go to our website at ourhope.cc uh, backslash EOY, which stands for end of year. And uh, you can give there, uh, or you could just go to redeeminghope.org uh, backslash give, and you could be directed to the same page. Uh, ask you to pray about that. Pray about helping us as we move ahead with the mission and vision that God has for us here in this city. So grateful for all of those who have partnered with us in the past or currently partnering with us and pray that you would partner with us. Ask that you pray that you, about partnering with us as we move forward. Appreciate that. A couple things by way of announcement. Um, again, we, we have a lot of groups that exist or are forming in the church. We'd love to connect you with our, our group life. We believe that that's where we grow in relationship and, and discipleship and mutual encouragement. We see our gifts uh, really blossom in those group environments. Uh, contact Josh at redeeminghope.org if you want to get involved in one of our groups. And also our, our Christmas uh, gathering, because, because Christmas Day is on a Sunday this year, uh, we are actually moving our Christmas service to Saturday night, Christmas Eve, 6 p.m. at the Y. would love for you to join us and celebrate Jesus together at that time. Uh, for us, uh, Christmas Day is a time when our culture, our, our culture naturally takes a Sabbath. And, so, uh, and we also take a, a Sunday Sabbath 
um, a couple times a year. So it just worked out that uh, we'd be able to take our Sunday Sabbath along with the cultural Sabbath of Christmas on Christmas Day and have our service on Saturday night. Would love for you to join us and worship with us at that time. And bring a friend, bring a friend out. It's going to be a great time. Um, also, we have people that are coming to Christ. We're going to be having a baptism service in January. If you're interested in being a part of that, or if you have any of your children that want to be baptized, that you know have had a genuine conversion experience with Christ, um, we practice believers' baptism uh, at Redeeming Hope. We would welcome you to contact me, Derek at RedeemingHope.org. Let me know about that, and uh, we'd love to have you be part of our baptism service. With that, let's head into our text today. We are in Isaiah chapter 53, verses 10 through 12, as we continue our series, God With Us, going through the book of Isaiah chapter 53, and the title of today's message is An Unlikely Author. Of course, this is a prophetic book by the Old Testament prophet Isaiah, who foretold of uh, Israel's coming Messiah, but also foretold of the discipline God would bring on Israel if they didn't turn and repent. That happened. Uh, This is 800 years before Christ ever came. It's almost like this chapter, it's like he's watching Jesus grow up before him prophetically, and he can foresee what's happening and foretell what is is going to happen. And Jesus fulfilled this entire chapter uh, of prophetic utterances. Jesus fulfilled this in his life to a T. It's amazing. Um, So let's read in Isaiah chapter 53, the last three verses of Isaiah 53, it says this, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death. He was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. This is God's word. Let's pray. We thank you for your word, God. We thank you for your gospel, the good news. Let it be good news to our hearts today as we look deeply into this text today at what you're telling us about this coming Messiah who has come. We know who he is. His name is Jesus. Help us to grasp the deep and the wide of the meaning of his death and resurrection. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's circle back to verse 10 here and make some comments on that. This whole text today begins with these words. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. Here we see the surprising wording and strange truth about the reality of Christ's suffering and death. It says it was God's will to crush him, that God put him to grief. We we learn here that God was the author of Christ's suffering. Everything we see that that, that is just so hard to see, The, the, the betrayal of Judas, the 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 false trial of the of the Jews that convicted Jesus before Pilate, the sending of Jesus to his flogging and the, the march uh, toward the cross, carrying his cross and the mistreatment at the hands of the of the Romans. I remember uh, uh, my sister uh, watched the Passion of the Christ movie years back. I remember her first reaction. She said, when I watch it, she goes, I'm sitting there saying, stop, stop hurting him. Stop abusing him. Stop it. And yet, Isaiah 53 
it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. It's shocking, isn't it? Last week we asked the question, who killed Christ? The common answer is, well, the Romans killed Christ. The Jews killed Christ. You know, the, the religious elite killed Christ. Or we, you know, theologically understand that our sin put him there and we say, I, I killed Christ. Uh, that's all true in a, in a second cause way, in a secondary way. This tells us the first cause, the primary author of Christ's death. He, God, has put him to grief. So who killed Christ? We must answer from this text. God killed Christ, or he allowed Christ's, Christ to be killed. The story of Christ that played out, God allowed that. He, he arranged it for our redemption. It's quite shocking when you see it that way. Now, God does not perform evil. God does not delight in evil. You know, Judas, the Roman soldiers, the Pharisees, all performed the evil, committed the evil, and will be held responsible for the evil. It's not like God was a puppeteer. But God allowed these instruments to do their will. He gave them over to their nature, their sin nature, and allowed them to mistreat the Son, and ultimately that Jesus was crucified for our sin. And it's, it's affirmed in plain language in the book of Acts. Listen to these two verses in the book of Acts. As Peter is preaching, I believe it's Peter here in Acts 2. It says, This man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to, to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. So Peter says, he was deliver, delivered over to you by a predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. That God arranged this. He's affirming what Isaiah said in Isaiah 53. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. Acts 1.16 says, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. And so again, it's affirmed this idea that it was foretold like it was in Isaiah or foretold by the mouth of David concerning Judas and his betrayal and that it was the fulfillment of scripture. It was the fulfillment of the plan of God, the foreordained, foreknown plan of God that Christ would be crucified. What does this mean for us? This ought to give us tremendous comfort in our suffering and our pain. God has the final say. In God's sovereignty, he allows at times, suffering in our lives for his sovereign purposes, for his glory and our ultimate good. It's painful at the time. No discipline seems pleasant at the time. It's hard. We wouldn't have picked it ourselves, but God is working in it all. Like the life of Joseph, God's silence is not absence. And oftentimes when it seems like God is, is not even in the picture, when God is silent, he's working the most for us, just like he was working in and through the story of Christ. We should be comforted in our suffering that God is in control, that he is the author and the, the gatekeeper of the duration of our suffering, of the intensity of our suffering, of the nature of our suffering. And he's the one who puts an end to it. Just like death couldn't hold Jesus in its power, 
Death can't hold any Christian in its power. It can't be ultimate. It can't ultimately harm us or destroy us because God is the author. He's the unlikely author. Sometimes we don't, we don't see it, that the, the pen is in God's hands. So there's a story God's writing here. Now, what is that story? What story is God writing? What is the story of Jesus? And that's what we're going to look at the rest of our time today. And we're going to pretend that the story of Jesus is a five-chapter book. And we're going to look at each chapter as it's foretold in Isaiah 53. Chapter one, the prince of heaven will come to earth. It says in Isaiah, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. That's Isaiah 7, 14. It's also repeated in the book of Matthew. So Isaiah foretold of this this prince of heaven who would come, that God would be with us. It's an amazing declaration, really, that God would not just, would no longer just be in heaven, that Jehovah, Yahweh, the God of Israel, would no longer just be in heaven, but that he would literally come to this world. We call this the incarnation, that God came to this world, wrapped himself in flesh through the virgin birth of Mary, and the God-man was born. We talked last week about the dual nature of Christ, 100% God, 100% man at the very same time. The God-man was born. And we get to see what God is like in Jesus. You want to know what God is like? Look at Jesus. Listen to the tone of his voice as he speaks to sinners and says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. As he says to the paralytic in Luke 5, friend, your sins are forgiven. Listen to his voice. Look at the gentleness and the love and the humility and the meekness that he had in a culture of ego back in that day when people were fighting for power and fighting to be gods on earth. Here comes God to earth. He humbles himself. And we see that God has a humble heart. Who knew God didn't have to have a humble heart? He's God. He gets all the glory. He could have chest pounded and No, instead, we see a humility and a gentleness, like a lamb led to the slaughter, it says earlier in this chapter. He's meek. What is meekness? It's not weakness. Meekness is power under restraint. At any moment on the cross, Jesus could have called legions of angels to come and defend him, but he didn't because he was meek. He had power under restraint. That's God. He has a humble heart. He's kind. He's gentle. He's patient. He's merciful. He's meek. And we see that in Christ. We see that in the incarnation. And we are left to fathom the great mystery of the incarnation. Have you ever thought about this? That in Jesus, when he was born to Mary, you have a mother who was made by her own son. It's, it's so mysterious. And yet, it's right in front of our eyes. That God walked among us and breathed our air. This is the Christmas story. God is here. God in Christ is visiting this world to begin to set things right. And I've said before, and we need to hear it again, that Jesus did the things in his life you would expect God to do if he visited this world. What would you expect a God life to look like? I would expect him to confront the corrupt uh, religious and political powers. I would expect him to do good and, and, and heal people and do miraculous things and maybe walk on water and raise the dead and open blind eyes and to speak the truth and, and set things right in this world. Jesus lived that very life. Jesus is that person. He's the God man. 
He's the incarnation. He's God with us. The Prince of Heaven will come to earth. That's the Christmas story. That's chapter one. What's chapter two? That he would suffer. In this text today that we read, it says it was the will of the Lord to crush him. That word crush means to be ground to a powder. Jesus was ground to a powder through what he experienced in this world and on the cross. He suffered in every way. He's a suffering king we can relate to and who can relate to us. You know, sometimes we suffer, we feel like God doesn't understand. But the Bible says he suffered in every way that we do, yet he never sinned. You know, when people suffer sometimes and they say, why? I, I don't always know why. As a pastor, I don't know why. I don't have all the answers. But what I can say is he does know human pain. He does understand our suffering. He comes alongside as someone who empathizes, doesn't just sympathize from heaven far off, but he empathizes as one who has walked among us. Maybe you've seen the show Undercover Boss, you know, where the, the CEO of the company disguises himself or herself and, and infiltrates the company in some low-level position and gets to interact with their workers. It's really a powerful show, um, and, and it really is a picture of the incarnation, that God wrapped himself in flesh. He experienced what those on the lowest rung of the ladder experienced, Jesus did. He was born a carpenter's son in, in lowly Nazareth and grew up in rural Israel. He walked these dusty streets. He bled, he cried. He understands. He's the ultimate undercover boss. He suffered here in his life and on the cross. That's chapter two. Chapter three, he'll succeed in his mission. Verses 10 and 11 says, uh, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. And then it says, it was the will of the Lord that the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand that God's will will be accomplished, that God's word will not return void through Jesus, that Jesus, in a sense, didn't die on the cross for the potential of saving God's people, for the potential of saving his own, because that means that Jesus potentially died for nothing. This says the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. God succeeds at everything he attempts Jesus didn't die on the cross for the potential of saving his church. He actually rescued and saved his church through his death on the cross. That it was effective. That through the cross and his resurrection, the good guys win. And we see this theme in many stories in our culture, don't we? But you know that, that idea that the good guys win in the end, even though they suffer, there's this conflict, this moment of conflict, you know, and then the, the good guy always comes back. The king is restored to the throne. You know, the good guy sort of comes back from the depths and, and wins it all. We see this theme in stories all over our culture, but it's, it's just a compass in our culture to Christ, isn't it? It's a compass to the story above all stories, to the king above all kings who went through conflict, saw the darkness of death, saw the darkness of the grave and came out of that through resurrection and is restored to his throne. Think of our stories in the Western world, you know, uh, in, in the last 100 years, you know, the Lord of the Rings, Frodo makes it to Mount Doom. Recently, the Avengers, you know, defeat Loki or, and Thanos 
and, and, and his minions. Batman defeats Bane. Luke and Leia defeat the dark side. Snow White defeats the witch. If you're into this kind of thing, SpongeBob outwits Mr. Krabs. It's all over our stories. And it's just a compass to point to the real story, the greatest story, the story above all stories. There was that great series by C.S. Lewis, The Chronicles of Narnia, and in the story, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, when, Lion, when, when Aslan, the, the Christ figure, gives his life at the stone table. The book talks about the ancient magic that nobody knew about that raised him up to defeat the witch and to defeat death itself. Jesus is our Aslan. He defeats on the cross sin, death, and hell, and he saves us. He purchased us through his blood and saves us, and he rescued his church through the cross. That's chapter three. He'll succeed in his mission. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Chapter four of this great story that God is writing. Jesus will justify his rescued ones. Verse 11 says, by his knowledge shall the, the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous and he shall bear their iniquities. What incredible gospel language. 800 years before the gospel was actually unfolded and preached and displayed. This means that unworthy sinners are declared and made righteous in the eyes of God. I like how it says they're accounted righteous. It's like a bank account. You and I have zero dollars in our spiritual bank accounts, but Jesus wires all his righteousness into our spiritual bank accounts. You know, in Matthew 5, 3, Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who recognize the poverty of their spiritual condition. They're the ones, in the sense, who see grace. They're the ones who see the solution is not within. It was provided as a gift from without. It's provided by Christ. And this, this Messiah that Isaiah foretold will account many as righteous. Many who are poor in spirit shall be accounted righteous because he shall bear their iniquities. You know, this truth is also called imputed righteousness. It's a, it's a very powerful idea in the gospel that we don't earn or work for our righteousness. We simply receive it as a gift. It's, it's wired to your bank account, your spiritual bank account from Christ's. It's imputed to your account from Christ's account as we believe in his death and resurrection. The New Testament tells us more about how this happens, how he justifies. Romans 3, 23 through 25. Famous verse, at least the first part of it. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Okay? So again, like Isaiah, he shall bear their iniquities. It, it, it affirms the fact that we've fallen short, that we have iniquity, we have sin. Verse 24. And they are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. That word propitiation, big Bible word, it just means wrath removing or wrath averting sacrifice. That's what Jesus did. He, he through his sacrifice, removed or averted the wrath of God from us to himself. And it says he justified us. This is chapter four, he will justify. To be justified means that we are in a right relationship with God's law. How does Jesus do that? How does he accomplish that in our hearts? How do you get in a right relationship with God's law? How does a sinner become unsinned or become righteous in God's eyes or acceptable in God's eyes? Two things. 
First of all, we see ourselves as sinners. We agree with the gospel's assessment of us. You know, I think sometimes we think that God grades on a curve, like there's this scale of deeds. And hopefully I've done enough good deeds to tip the scale in my favor that on judgment day, God will, you know, say, oh, you you did it. You did enough good. A lot of people think that way. And when we think that way, it's like we think God's judgment is like being in a group of people running from a bear in the woods. Now, if you're in that situation, all you need to be able to do is run faster than the slowest guy and you'll be okay. And that's how we think God's gonna judge us. As long as I can run faster than the, than the slowest guy, as long as I'm better than the worst person I can think of, or oh, they are really bad, they need God, right? But I, I, you know, I'm, I'm good enough. You know, I had a friend in the wrestling community that I, I was, you know, sharing my faith with, and we had breakfast one day, and I was talking about our need for salvation. And he said, I don't need, I don't need to be saved. I'm a good person. And then he pointed out this other coach that he knew that was, you know, kind of a, kind of a rascal, kind of a, uh, a great sinner. Everybody knew it. He said, he, he says, he needs, he needs salvation. I don't need salvation. I'm like, don't you see? It's, it's, it's great. We all need grace. We're all in the same spot before the cross. He, he couldn't see it. Hopefully he's seen it now. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It's not, God doesn't grade on a curve. It's not the ability to run faster than the slowest guy, you know, in the woods from a bear. We all need grace. We all need salvation. And believing that deeply in my heart, I am a sinner in need of grace is a big step toward being justified in the eyes of God. God doesn't keep us down there, but he moves us toward his solution. And that's the second part of it. How does God do this? We see ourselves as sinners. And secondly, we see Jesus as God's solution. And maybe you go, what? Jesus, Buddha, Muhammad, whatever. You know, as long as you believe whatever you believe with all your heart and you're sincere, you you know, you'll be okay. Well, I want to challenge that thought. If you believe there's another way, I want you to think about Gethsemane, the night before Jesus was crucified. When he was in the garden, he had a conversation with the Father, and it went something like this. Looking at the cross, he said, my Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Speaking of the cross. Now, in other words, if there's another way of salvation, if there's another way to rescue your people, if there's another way to rescue the church, to rescue the lost. Not my will, but yours be done. Then he came back a few minutes later and that's what he said. If it's not possible then, if it's not possible, he said those words, if it's not possible, not my will, but yours be done. Listen, if there was another way to be rescued and saved outside of Christ, Jesus would have taken it in that moment and the Father would have provided it. But we see in Gethsemane, that there was only one way to do this, and that was that a lamb without spot or wrinkle, without blemish, a sinless lamb, the ultimate lamb, Christ, would be crucified, that God would come to this world and be crucified on our behalf and rescue us. And you know, if, if we fight against that idea and say, man, that just seems so narrow, that's so, 
This is what I hate about religion, that you think you're, the, you think you're right and everybody else is wrong. Listen, it, the way to see this is, you know, if somebody's in a burning building and they just want to be rescued, right? If danger's all around them. Let's say a fireman comes into that person and says, follow me, I know the way out. And the guy goes, just one way? There's only one way out? Yeah, there's just one way out of here. Follow me and I will rescue you. Wouldn't it be a fool that says, there's only one way out of here? Well, that is so narrow. Forget that, I'm not following you. We would think that person to be very foolish. And yet that's how a lot of people approach, uh, approach God. And you know, when you look at our society, people want, people want truth when we're assessing things, right? When it comes to medical things, people want the truth. You know, if, you, if you have tests taken, you don't want the doctor to beat around the bush. You just say, give it to me straight, doc. What, what's, my, what's my problem? When it comes to financial counsel, we just want truth. What's a good investment? What's a bad investment? You know, we, we, we want to be told the truth about these things. And yet, when it comes to spirituality, everybody just wants to be told that they're okay. What if you're not okay? What if you're in great danger? What if all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God? What if there's only one way out? Jesus is our salvation. So we see ourselves as sinners and we see Jesus as God's solution. You know, just last month, I'm a Team Hoyt fan. I don't know if you ever heard of Team Hoyt. Just last month, the father in the story of Team Hoyt passed away. His son with cerebral palsy wanted to run the Ironman, which would be an impossible task for him because of his paralysis. So his father trained for it and competed in the Ironman with his son by pushing and pulling him, depending on what part of the race they were in. And if you watch the video, as his son crossed the finish line with his father pushing from behind. His son raised his hands in victory as if he'd run the race himself, but his father had done all the work. And that's a picture of the gospel. That's a picture of salvation. Not our merits, not our good work. Jesus did the work. We simply put our lives in his hands and let him be our strength. So chapter four, he will justify, he will save. And finally, chapter five of Jesus' story. He will reign. Verse 12 again. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. This is foretelling the future, Christ's future, which is our future that he will divide a portion with the many, he shall divide the spoil with the strong, that Jesus will enjoy the spoils of victory in the end over sin, death, and hell. Matter of fact, in Matthew 28, 18, it says Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That's after Jesus' resurrection. He says, all authority has been given to me. If Jesus has all authority, how much authority does sin, death, and hell have? Zero. Hell has been defeated. Sin, sickness, and death will come to an end. There is a day when everything sad in your life, if your faith is in Christ, everything sad in your life will become untrue. Since Jesus defeated sin, death, and hell at the cross, now as believers, we, fear, we ought fear nothing ultimately. All suffering is for his glory. All trials 
He works for the good. Death is not an end. Death is a door to eternal life. Our past is forgiven. Our present is secure. Our future is certain. And one day every knee shall bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. Even the greatest enemies of Christ, the greatest enemies of the cross, the greatest enemies of the gospel, their knees shall bow and say, Jesus Christ is Lord. We're celebrating the birth of Christ, his first coming. You know, there's a second coming. And that second coming, Jesus will not come back as a baby. Revelation 19 foretells of his second coming, that he's coming back to set things right in this world. He's coming back as a warrior with a, with a tattoo on his leg. It says, King of kings and Lord of lords. And he's coming back to bring justice to this world for those who have not believed. He'll ultimately defeat sin, death, and hell. You know, one way to look at where we are right now is what you might call the in-betweens. You know, on June 6, 1944, the Allied forces stormed the beaches of Normandy and won a great victory. War historians believe that World War II was ultimately won on that day. It was inevitable. The outcome was inevitable on that day. And yet it was September 2nd, 1945, that the Allied forces ultimately declared victory. What, that's 15, 16 months later after D-Day? What happened in those 15 to 16 months? In that time, you might call it the in-betweens. There were these skirmishes and these battles that had to be fought as the Allied forces moved toward Berlin to ultimately defeat the Nazi regime. And so there was this in-between time between when the victory was secured and inevitable and the victory was ultimate and final. Those are the times we live in right now. That's where you and I are on the gospel timeline. Jesus defeated sin, death, and hell at the cross. He stormed the beaches of Normandy at great sacrifice to himself and gave himself at the cross. But God's story will end with Christ ultimately reigning over his church and reigning over and renewing this world. We're in the in-betweens. But Christ shall come and Christ shall reign. He'll bring justice to this world and make every sad day untrue. So let's look forward to the great hope of the resurrection, the great hope of Christ's second return as believers in Jesus Christ. The Christmas story that God is writing is continuing in our day, in our times, and in our lives as we follow Jesus. And so finish with me by remembering the chorus of that great Christmas hymn as we sing and follow him. Oh, come, let us adore him. Oh, come, let us adore him. Oh, come, let us adore him, Christ the Lord. Jesus is enough. God bless you. Thanks for watching. Hope to see you in person or online again soon. Merry Christmas. Thank you for listening. We gather every Sunday at the Clarksville area YMCA. For more information, please go to our website at redeeminghope.org.